Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Rob Worth, founder and CEO of Lyft AI, a company that's bringing the world's elevators online. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me, Elaine. Great to be here. So it looks like you've spent pretty much your entire career in the elevator industry. So how did that happen? Is it a family industry? Uh, that's, that's right. So my father started a company uh, in 1985. Uh, he was an engineer coming out of college, mechanical engineer. And uh, first engineering job that he could get was uh, just happened to be with an elevator company. And uh, he was designing uh, mechanical tools for field installation of elevators and escalators um, that the mechanics would use out in the field. And Kind of classic story, uh, I think, of, of entrepreneurship any anywhere in the world. Uh, he eventually um, was promoted a couple times and then had a bad boss and decided he, he hated that. And that caused him to start Wartech, uh, the family company, which I worked at for about uh, 14 years uh, out of college, although I grew up working there my, uh, my whole life pretty much over summers, et cetera, um, breaks from school. And then... Uh, after being there about 14 years, I started playing around uh, with the initial concepts uh, for Lyft AI, kind of the proverbial nights and weekends uh, for about two or three years and while maintaining that, that day job. And then uh, 2019 uh, went full time with Lyft AI. Well, starting with kind of a dumb question, but can you walk us through like how an elevator actually works? Because I think you know people enter it all the time. Every one of us has taken one, but I think the workings of it are probably not common knowledge. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and that actually hits on kind of an interesting point uh, for me, which has come up frequently in the past when, when I talk to people kind of in this, uh, uh, in this spirit. I don't actually know that much about elevators themselves and the inner workings of them. So uh, I've, I've gotten there to the point, but my, my, my family's business... Uh, did not make elevators uh, actually for a long time. We've, we've started getting into it more recently over the last few years, but uh, for the longest time, it was it was just the tooling that was used in the field. Uh, so I didn't actually have a lot of interactions with uh, the complete elevator system uh, as a whole. Um, I could tell you down to an incredibly granular you know level uh, how to install the rails that a, an, a typical elevator rides on. Um, sort of like uh, uh, a train, uh, except obviously vertical. Um, and I can tell you about alignment techniques and uh, the actual filing of the rail joints themselves, which is sort of like filing your nails just to get a smooth, uh, flush joint. Uh, but the actual workings of an elevator, I would be, you know, my, my knowledge is there's people that have, there's a lot of people in this industry that have forgotten more than I know today. Uh, but the basics are, that you know you've got sort of I'm, I'm going to oversimplify here but you've got a traction elevator and a hydraulic elevator are kind of the two two approaches um and a hydraulic elevator will 
be typically used for lower rise uh, applications. Uh, Los Angeles is a huge hydro market. Uh, so where you have lower rise buildings kind of spread out um, and you've got a piston that pushes the elevator up essentially in a big hydraulic tank of oil uh, that, that allows that to happen. And you'll typically only use those up to around uh, five floors. And then beyond that, you get to a traction machine, which is kind of what most people I think think of when they think of elevators. And um, there's a lot of new designs these days, uh, but primarily it's a, it's a big machine over top of the elevator in what we call the machine room, uh, sort of a, just a big cement room. Uh, and there's holes in the floor, literally, that the ropes then go through attached to the elevator on one side and the counterweight on the other side, which uh, the counterweight just uh, it, um, uh, allows for efficiency and movement of that elevator. So it's, it's uh, proportional to the load that that elevator is expected to take when fully loaded with people. Um, and so uh, that's a traction elevator. And so those are the ones with ropes. Uh, those are the ones most people think of. Um, and then the hydraulic ones are, are the ones that you know, you'll find in a, in a Holiday Inn Express you know, typically they're, they're lower cost, faster to install, uh, easier from a complexity standpoint to install. Um, and then traction, you know, is what people are used to riding in, you know, Manhattan or, or any, uh, any major urban environment. It's interesting that the traction is more expensive. I would have guessed because the hydraulic is, seems more technically <clears throat> complex that it would be more expensive, but I guess it's not. It's, there are cases where that has changed over time. So, and, and it would get pretty um, detailed quickly. And candidly, I don't even know all the dynamics at play, um, but there, you know, so I, I think like a decent maybe metaphor or analogy would be automotive where like, are EVs cheaper than, than internal combustion? I mean, yes, maybe, but no, not really. You know, I think like that some of that dynamic is at play. Um, you, figuring in maintenance costs, you know, uh, things of that sort, it can change. But I think, you know, and it's, it's pretty unfair comparison to say, hey, a hydraulic elevator in a three-stop Holiday Inn is less expensive than a 35-stop traction elevator, you know, in Midtown Manhattan. You know, of course it is. Like there's less materials, et cetera. But so the, the core technology, I don't know, you could probably say they're they're relatively at parity um but the systems are more are, the application of the traction systems are more complex typically how much does an elevator cost i have no question. concept of cost. Yeah. no one knows uh it's uh and candid you know frankly the elevator companies sort of like it that way uh the manufacturers um uh to give some kind of like um waypoint markers on it uh, a home elevator, and these are gross, you know, generalization oversimplifications, but a home elevator is going to, you know, for a basic elevator is going to be about thirty-five dollars to $45,000. Um, you can go lower and, you know, I know of home elevators that are over half a million dollars in, in homes that are, you can probably imagine. Um, a commercial elevator application, so a Holiday Inn, you know, uh, a condo building, uh, and a uh, class A office space type, you're, you're looking at, you know, kind of in the, the lower end office market, uh, kind of suburban office market, you're probably in the like 80 to $125,000 range. And, you know, in the 
you know, if you're in a condo building, I think you're probably looking at more like 350 to 450,000, you know, for 20 stops, you know, type, type setup. And then once you get into, you know, one world trade center, you know, prices get to be pretty difficult to, to put your finger on. Um, you know, you're, you're over a million dollars, you know, potentially in some of the high rise stuff, which gets, you know, uh, frankly, pretty complex, you know, and, and to give you just a little, tiny little example of things people don't think about. Um, but, you know, as, as with the case of any skyscraper, the engineering challenges, you know, grow um, literally and figuratively. Uh, but uh, with elevators, it, like just take one tiny example. Um, there's been, been instances in the past where if the engineering is not done properly up front, an elevator uh, in a, an extremely high rise building so it'd be a traction car and the ropes of that elevator in a, in a, uh, a windy day. And if the, um, you know, essentially the, the, the flow of air through that shaft is not managed properly and the exit of that flow, like sort of negative air pressure type, type events, the ropes will whip in the hoistway so hard that, for example, when the elevator is at the lobby, uh, and so you have sort of maximum length of rope through the shaft. Um, up at like the, the 30, 40th floor, those ropes will actually swing so far, they'll knock the doors out, the landing doors out at that like 35th, 40th floor. Um, and people are like, wow, that's obviously crazy and not good. So um, yeah, you get to some kind of interesting challenges as you get to those higher, uh, higher uh, buildings, taller buildings. And is the way you build a traction elevator for like a hundred story building essentially the same as if it was a six story building? Is it one length of rope? Um, So there's more ropes, you know, and and every elevator pretty much starts with probably minimum of six, eight, you know, there's elevator guys listening to this that are going to cringe, you know, at at probably many of the things I'm saying, because I'm oversimplifying here, but um, yeah, you're ranging anywhere from probably like four to 12, 16 ropes on average. And, um, the diameters change, of course, uh, the lengths change, of course, but I would say core principles, sort of the, the engineering principles of design remain the same, whether you're running a traction car, you know, 50 floors or five. And how complicated is it to retrofit a building and install an elevator as opposed to doing it in new construction? Um, I would say to some extent easier, um, you know, the, uh, with, with a lot of caveats. So depending on what was installed prior and what the building owner is looking to put in next, we call them mods, modernizations. Uh, but you basically leave a lot of this, you leave as much structural equipment as you can. So like in a modernization, an existing building, getting a new elevator, you leave all the rails in the building. Typically, um, you, you leave sort of what you can, there's times when they leave the machine itself and they're just basically swapping out the control system. Um, so if you're, if you're a resident in a building or a tenant, um, you know, officer or, or uh, um, your living space, you know, when, when, when they, the building owner says new elevator, you know, that could mean a lot of different things. So, you know, for those of you there who've, who've said, you know, the building you're in says new elevator and it doesn't really seem to act any differently, um, you know, a pretty low cost way to quote, add a new elevator is to refresh the interior of the cab. Uh, and claim it's a new elevator, um, which is probably like a $20,000 endeavor rather than a you know $75,000 endeavor. Um, and so uh, the new elevators, new installations, there's just, there's a lot of math 
frankly, an alignment that goes into new elevators, ensuring you know they're plumb uh, to your surface, the, the rails are aligned properly. The rail alignment, you know, is is pretty critical, and it sort of just kind of gets forgotten about. Like it, it's kind of like the uh, the unsung uh, hero of performance on elevators in some respects is are the rails, um, because if they're you know if you've ever had a car where the wheels were out of alignment and your steering wheel is kind of like jittering at 60 miles an hour down the highway, um, you know, that would in essence happen in an elevator when your rails are out of alignment. And so you could have a brand new, perfect elevator of magnificent design. And if the rails are not wrong or not set and aligned properly, you know, your, your Ferrari is going down the road, shaking at 60 miles an hour, um, which is not what anybody's looking for. So um, I would say new installation, they're different, but new installation can present some pretty unique, difficult challenges uh, in getting things set properly from day one, sort of getting it, it all set up. And then the modernizations are difficult when people are asking you to marry up sort of old and new equipment uh, in odd ways that, that could be challenging. And what is the state of the market in terms of the people who manufacture? It sounds like there are different manufacturers for the, the actual cab and the car and the rails, the components, and then the maintenance. So is it kind of this complex ecosystem of different vendors or is it more consolidated and some own the entire vertical process? Um, both. So it's I would say it's still relatively fragmented in terms of different component uh, suppliers, manufacturers. Um, that sort of build different pieces of the overall system. And depending on the manufacturer, sometimes you can buy those individual pieces. Um, sometimes they'll only sell to sort of what I think most people would think of as integrators, um, you know, who are putting them all together as part of a larger, as a part of a complete elevator system. Uh, but there are individual component suppliers. Like there will be people that they only make elevator doors, for example. Um, and frankly, that's a nice business because if you stop and think about it, there's a lot of doors in a single elevator, you know, in a 50 story elevator, a 50 stop elevator, there's one machine, but there's 50 floors of doors. Uh, and those doors, when, you know, somebody kicks it, they bump it with a wheelchair, they, a kid, you know, draws on it. I mean, they get replaced, you know, reasonably frequently. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's more of a consumable than one might think. Um, and so that's kind of a nice business. And then there's complete systems providers um, you know, you have the big four, uh, sort of globally, which is Otis Schindler Tissen, uh, which is now called TK elevator, uh, but TK elevator and Kone. So you have German, Swiss, Finnish, and American, uh, across those four companies. And then you have a, 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 a pretty large consortium of Asian players as well. A lot of the names people would know Toshiba, Fuji tech, Hyundai, um, sort of those conglomerates that, that will, will are also in the elevator business. Um, and they do the whole thing. So they'll, they'll design it, manufacture the whole thing, sell it. They will sell, for example, uh, an Otis elevator. And that's important to them that that is branded oh, Otis. It's their design. They have engineers that, that, that are pushing, you know, sort of the boundaries of what's possible with elevator design. They're, they're working hard to innovate around how uh, elevators can serve their customers better, uh, which are the building owners and the, 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 the riding public in those elevators. Um, and then the interesting or, or somewhat interesting thing that, uh, most people don't, don't sort of know at first, cause I have never found like great, uh, analogies to this is those large manufacturers that I just mentioned, they also own the service side of it. So they have an entire field staff, uh, or, or out there 
doing service on their elevators. So if you compare it to, say, for example, automotive, it would be if Ford Motor, for example, owned themselves all their dealer network where you did the service uh, for your Ford truck, uh, that would be akin to Otis. So if you, you know, install an Otis elevator, uh, Otis service technicians, or Otis wants it to be you to service it with Otis service technicians. And then there's also uh, a pretty large at this point um, and long tail of what we call independent contractors or service companies who are, you know, sort of SMB businesses that um, don't necessarily typically do not manufacture elevators. They only focus on servicing them and they'll service any equipment and they'll be trying to win that contract, that service contract away from the Otis, you know, service company um, after the sort of the three-year warranty runs out when, uh, which is typically what happens when it gets sold and installed. I feel like services has to be a good business too. Kind of like the doors was an interesting one. I didn't really think about the fact that you have doors on every floor and they're also more consumable, but I feel like every building I've ever spent time in, at least one of the elevators is always undergoing some kind of maintenance. Yes. So your, your intuition is, is absolutely uh, spot on and the, uh, the money is in service in, in this industry. It's a, it's much more of a razor razor blade model, um, you know, and, if you don't want to take my word for it, or if you want to learn more about it, uh, you know, Otis is now spun out from uh, UTC as a standalone company. So it's pretty easy to look in their 10Q and you can see where, where the, the, you know, the profits are here, where the margins are. And it's, it's a service-based, you know, business really. It's um, elevators need to be serviced. There's regulatory requirements, which is, makes for a nice sort of moat there. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, as you've noted, uh, the services is, is really, you know, perpetual, uh, until you then modernize, uh, and then you modernize. And, you know, the thing about elevators is you don't rip elevators out and put staircases in or something like that. So, you know, uh, elevators just replace elevators. So the installed base, which is about 16 million globally today, um, it keeps growing. You know, it's, it's the last I checked, uh, I think it's like, four percent a year installed base growth four or five percent i think it bounces between four and six percent heavily dependent on china um which is where an incredible amount of installs are, have been happening uh over the last couple decades but um yeah it's 16 million uh, installed globally give or take and you know growing at about four to six percent installed base per year are there any other areas in the world aside from china that you're seeing rapid growth um no, no, not really. Um, you know, probably the closest would be other parts of Asia. Um, but everything else is pretty mature. Um, the numbers are, are relatively difficult to come by. I mean, I think you can back into them sort of if you um, look at the, the investor day that the four, uh, the four big companies give. And, but you still have to account for all the independent companies out there who are typically or who are all private and don't release numbers and they install elevators too. So it's a little hard to triangulate, but like the U S for example, I think a decent number is, is about, you know, third 20 to 30,000 new installs per year. Um, and so that's, and that's kind of remained the same back when like 2007 ish is kind of when I remember it being the busiest, at least over the last say 20 years. And I think we got up to like 40,000 a year. 
Um, but China will do like 400,000 in new installs in a year. So it just dwarfs Crazy. anything else. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting point over there. And, and I don't know the market extremely well over there. Uh, certainly not, not like a lot of people, but they've also pursued a bit of a different model over there where they're what I've been sort of told by people who are a lot more familiar with it than me is that they're throwing them in so fast over there that they just sort of break down in like five years and then they got to put it in another one. And this, the market has not matured to the point where there's like a robust after service or after sales service economy uh, or business, which is what we have in any, in a mature market, you know, North America, Europe, Etc. The service, like we talked about, is the main driver of of, of profits um, and revenue. Uh, China is more about just throw them in as fast as you can. Don't worry about the service. And in five years, when it breaks down because you haven't maintained it at all, uh, just put a new one in. So I think it kind of skews the numbers a little. And you know, I don't I don't think sort of that dynamic with respect to China is is unique to elevators. Um, you know, I think that that probably uh, same concept kind of is true in other areas as well, potentially. Um, but, but definitely in elevators, I've, I've sort of heard various anecdotal stories along those lines. That's crazy. I've seen some of the videos of how fast they're building in China and it's just insane. I mean, given the speed of construction in the U S it's just mind boggling. I feel yes. like also it was funny. You were saying, I liked the, I like the point on if you have an elevator, you're not ripping it out and replacing it with stairs. I feel like there's an opportunity for some kinds of, uh, especially if it's uh, residential buildings to brand themselves as we're for an active lifestyle, which is why we don't have elevators. So you have to walk <laughs> up the stairs and get your steps in or something. It'd be kind of like a funny, funny branding. There, I, I mean, there is, uh, if there's a real estate person listening to this at some point, they're latching onto that because they probably hate their elevator company. Uh, and they're like, if nothing else, then I can never have to, I never have to deal with another elevator company. Uh, yeah, I, it's, uh, that's funny. And, and I think could get some, get some legs. And so, so, and somewhat interestingly enough, what, so, uh, actually I was recently, recently talking to, uh, a pretty good friend, a guy that I know in Spain, um, and he's involved in service and maintenance uh, heavily. Um, but 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 to your point, so counterintuitively, somewhat like you might think Europe doesn't have a lot of elevators because if you you know anybody listening has been to Europe, there's you don't have a lot of Manhattan's in Europe. You know you don't have a lot of Chicago's in Europe with the skyscraper density. You know, you certainly don't have Hong Kong, uh, et cetera. I mean, you've got London, you know, uh, Frankfurt, you know, Paris, you know, et cetera. Uh, uh, not trying to slight any of the other cities that, that also have the skyscrapers. But what gets missed is there's an incredible amount of low slung elevators. So Spain, for example, uh, I was just told by the guy I was referencing, has uh, 1.1 million elevators in Spain. So if you compare that to the U.S., which has about a million elevators uh, installed base. I think most people would find that, you know, a bit counterintuitive or, or surprising maybe that Spain actually has, you know, roughly the same number of elevators as the U.S. I think that would probably surprise most people. Um, and what it is, they're just have, it's, it's almost cultural to us to, in a sense where you've got a lot of residential uh, buildings with three, four floors 
and they just they put an elevator in. It's sort of just the the, the practice they put it in, um, and so it's your active lifestyle thing. Like you know, you would think they would not have many elevators, and they would be you know climbing the stairs all the time. Uh, in reality, I think they're they're throwing relatively low cost elevators in pretty much every building you know above two floors. I think the most shocking thing you just said was that there's only a million elevators in the U.S. That's way under what I would have expected. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, so how would you have triangulated? Like, a, you know, this is like an investment banking interview question. Uh, how many elevators are there in the U.S.? Yeah. I mean, I guess it would literally be thinking through like, okay, how many tier one, tier two, tier three cities are there in those cities? How many buildings over? I probably would have done like four floors as the kind of benchmark. Yeah. And then, um, you know, extrapolate that out as like 75% of the market and then add another 25%. And I feel yeah. like there's got to be a lot more, but I guess not. My, my estimation was way over. Uh, yeah. And it could be, we could be honestly, in, in all fairness, I think I've been quoting that million uh, number for several years now. So it's probably a little outdated. Um, but I think, you know, give or well, take. Even single, right. low single digit millions is still... Yeah. Know, I don't know, I guess lower than I expected. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, you know, the, there's, you know, I think we can all, you know, Americans can recognize at times we have an American centric view. Um, and, you know, as probably anybody does, but, uh, the it's, you know, we're less than 10% of the market here sitting in, in us and Canada which the US and Canadian market from a standards, a codes perspective, which is really what drives our industry is, is very, very similar, almost the same. Um, and so it's really interesting. Our, our, our industry trade show, our global industry trade show is outside of Munich every two years. And when we, when I go there as an American, I'm like totally the outsider, which, you know, again, like is obvious sort of in hindsight or when you know what's going on, but like, you know, probably uh, could, could even criticize myself for this for a little bit, like uh, to some extent. When I first started going, it was like, this feels weird. You know, I thought like we were more the norm and then like, or at least we were closer to everybody else. And, and it turns out, you know, we're it, at least from an industry level, we are per, in the top three, definitely most profitable regions for any multinational company. The North American market is, is highly profitable. Um, but from a size perspective, you know, it's, yeah, if you've got 16 million, you know, globally and, and we're a million, you know, you're, you're less than 10% of the market. Um, so it, it gets interesting from a standards perspective um, uh, in that regard, because what works in Europe, it really cannot just be brought over the, the, uh, the pond and used here and vice versa. Uh, so there's like, there's a lot in the industry, a debate going on there with sort of like, a, a, do people want um, there's certain people that want a unified code. Um, and it's obviously pretty important, you know, where that gets unified, uh, because somebody stands the chance of getting like some serious competition that they've never had before. Right. So for example, we standardize more on the, the European style codes, the American companies, number one, wouldn't be able to export their products to, to Europe very well, even though they really can't today hardly for the same reason you don't see you know ford f-150s running around europe our elevators look pretty differently you know for anybody who's traveled between the two continents um but two the american and canadian companies specifically would just get competition coming over from europe that they obviously do not want um because suddenly then 
the, the products that are over there could start complying with codes that we have over here. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to get into a little bit what you're building at Lyft AI. So tell us a little bit about what the product is and kind of what the insight was that led you to start the company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's, and that's actually kind of a decent segue, uh, unintentionally, um, from standards and, and codes. So what we're building, you know, uh, at our core is a technology to allow data collection off of elevators at scale. So going back to kind of the standards, uh, topic, you know, uh, I am not an engineer by academic training, um, and uh, I'm not a, a programmer, coder, dev on the tech side. Uh, I'm passionate about uh, all those things, but uh, I'm not formally trained in, in any of them, and I don't code even in my spare time. I haven't taught myself, et cetera, but I'm passionate about it. And, and I say that because some of the insight that I had came from that, you know, uh, and I mean, in so much as I was writing programs in, in basic back when I was younger on notebook paper, but you know, nothing beyond that. I understand the concepts to some extent and a C plus plus class in college that weeded me out as it was intended to do. Um, but other than that, <laughs> nothing. Um, but, but the, the, the insight was, so that's what we're building. We're building the technology an IOT device specifically, uh, a sensor based IOT device that mounts on any elevator. It's equipment agnostic. It's, it's sort of uh, an Apple Watch or Fitbit of elevators. Um, and those are the types of sensors we use, which I'll get into. But it's intended and it's designed in order to uh, be optimized around the fact that we want it to be equipment agnostic, um, low cost on a bomb basis, on a, on a, on a, on a hardware basis, and uh, easy to install. Fat, I should say easy and fast, which are related but different. Uh, and so that informed the design and the approach, kind of the philosophy for how we attacked uh, the design. We were trying to solve for that problem or trying to, to create that product because today, and going into the tech side, like, so SMTP as a protocol, right? You know, I think everybody would say in the tech, like that opened up a lot of innovation, you know, a lot of use cases, et cetera, for email. Well, there's no standard uh, for collecting data. Well, I should say there's no standard uh, on data for elevators at all. So you may have read in the news, um, like John Deere, there's a lot of, of talk going around about right to repair laws. Most people think of it as the iPhone uh, and the right to repair, but actually John Deere is sort of a, is also a player in that space or, or a character in that sort of story because John Deere put software more and more and more into their, into their tractors. As Andreessen said, software is indeed eating the world. Tractors, know, you know, as well. They're putting more and more software in there and farmers are, are not able to repair their tractors as they were, say, 20, 30 years ago. It gets stuck in a field today, you know, and it's a Linux problem, not a, you know, a, a coupling valve problem on their axle or, or something similar. So it's not, it's not, hey, bring a welder you know, it's bring a Linux machine out to, 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 to try to get to the, you know, uh, bug that's in the software. But even if you are familiar with that as a farmer, you can't get into the software. They lock it up. It's proprietary. You're, you cannot get in to fix it. And elevators are the same in the sense that their control systems, for, for the most part, are proprietary. They're locked up. You cannot get the diagnostics and fault codes out of those systems. You could reverse engineer. Technically, you can, and people have done it. But even if you go to the trouble of reverse engineering and doing sorts of things like that, um, 
then legal steps in and you get a very uh, nasty gram letter from the particular manufacturer saying, hey, uh, you're going to want to not do that anymore. Um, and so <laughs> we looked at that and said, you know, with all this, this uh, smorgasbord of equipment out there globally, you know, going, and we're talking technologies, elevators are still out there running that are 40 years old using relay logic. And then we have microprocessors running new elevators and PLCs and et cetera in between. There's no way to get data off of elevators at scale at any sort of price point that can make any sort of economic sense to deploy. And so that's what we designed the device to do. The next natural question is like, well, why do you care? Why do you want data off of elevators? Like who cares about data right. off elevators? To which, you know, so, so you could decide which insight came first, but the, the insight there was that today elevators, 16 million elevators globally, which all the money's in service, like we talked about, uh, they're still maintained through what I call, you know, somewhat pejoratively a milkman route. It's just a mechanic that goes by every 30 days, sometimes maybe a quarter. Um, and the sort of like wink, wink secret is that a lot of times they don't actually go, uh, but they're supposed to be going per the contract and per what they said. They go once a month or once a quarter. And to be clear for anybody listening, like that's not the mechanic's fault. You know, when that, when that happens, that's a, that's a corporate decision typically. Almost always, it's not a. That's not a. Hey, Joe, the mechanic decided he just didn't want to go do his job. No, it's not that. And so the, uh, but the milkman route is the is the is the point here. That it's just go every every thirty days, apply preventative maintenance, oil, grease, adjust the doors, etc., to keep those things running. Because elevators, so it's an electric mechanical piece of equipment. It does need preventative maintenance, and that's the best way, in my view, to keep elevators running safely, efficiently cost effectively over the long term and extend the life of that equipment as it was designed to, to, to be. The, I, my simple belief is that informing those trips or the, that, that preventative maintenance with some amount of data is useful. Like just start there, just simple fact there. And yes, if that data costs, you know, $6,000 an elevator, you know, to install and then $50 per month on cellular fees to get that IoT data off there, uh, that starts to make a lot less sense. You start to say, actually, I don't know, maybe the milkman routes is still the best methodology to do this. But, you know, as anybody involved in tech listening to this out knows, I mean, number one, it's deflationary and IoT prices, data transmission prices, you know, what I saw is the sensors and hardware prices were all going down like dramatically. Um, you know, we can all thank the iPhone for that, for making accelerometers like five cents. Um, and then the cellular networks were becoming ubiquitous. So coverage was becoming ubiquitous and just so easy to tap into to get data off of these sites. And then uh, third was the, the, the pricing of that data. Like three years ago, I was paying, four years ago, maybe at this point, I was paying $25 for 25 megs a month of data. I mean, today... You know, depending on who you use, et cetera, so you're like you're paying a dollar for that today, which is just completely changes the unit economics that are possible with something like this in a business model. And so I believe that that data can inform how various stakeholders, uh, namely property owners and then the elevator service companies themselves, how they approach maintenance by taking into account, hey, and the example I always use is hospital versus Holiday Inn Express in a suburb. You know, we have devices today on VA hospitals that are running 55,000 trips a month. And we have devices on hotels in suburban America that are running about 4,500 trips a month. 
And so that's just very different to anybody, I think, who, you know, in anybody intuitively can even understand that. And any engineer would say, well, yeah, like we sh logically should apply maintenance, you know, kind of a different formula given what we're, we're seeing here in usage, right? And so uh, that's what we think the data, the, the types of thing, what the, to answer the question, why do you even want this data? What, of what use is it? Um, it's to inform those kinds of decisions. And we see, I see uh, a shift that I believe is going to happen from the sort of milkman route to what people, I use a lot of different words for depending on who I'm talking to, but I, I see more of a, a targeted maintenance approach being the future where we say, hey, what are the high use? You know, how can we pick up vibration, um, you know, patterns that indicate the elevator is actually performing, you know, significantly worse this month than it was last month? And can we get ahead of that problem? Um, and, and so we should get somebody out there to service that now rather than wait 30 days. And that's where we're going there. That's where we are today, I should say. Where we're going is towards more predictive over time. But it's my belief that predictive is not here today. I don't believe anybody's doing it today globally in our space. Um, I think it's a, it's a lot of PR and marketing of people say they are doing it. Um, it's an incredibly difficult problem overall. Um, I do think it's, it's moving in that direction, definitely. I think we can debate how quickly our industry is going to get there and what it's going to look like when we do. Um, but, but, but our belief is that we're, we're building the foundational building blocks to allow us to do that, that sort of thing while also providing real value today. Instead of saying, hey, put this device on in five years from now, we'll have enough data to actually do predictive maintenance. No, we, we think we can inform decisions at a, you know, with unit economics today for our partners, the property owners and the service companies that, that add a lot of value to them by presenting this, this data. And importantly, data at scale. You know, so we have like a property owner we're working with now who has 950 elevators across their residential portfolio. They want data off 950 elevators not 10. Right. And so right. that's, that's a big difference. And the analogy I use there is it's sort of like an ERP system. No one would suggest that you put 10% of your inventory into your ERP system and that'll help you manage your inventory. <laughs> you know, so right. uh, when, somebody comes analogy. And, yeah, when somebody comes and says, hey, like, we're just going to put like 10% of our portfolio with your devices, you know, I kind of explain to them like, hey, I understand why you're saying that. And like, if you want to pilot it to kind of see the results, but really, this is, is more binary, you know, at full deploy. It's, it's either you deploy it like at scale and it does work and it does create value for you or it doesn't really. This makes so much sense. It's funny to you mention Mark Andreessen's whole software eats the world. And I kind of feel like that was the 2010s. And I keep saying the 2020s is data defines the decade. And if you look at how much money people spend in the tech world on data for everything from reducing costs helping conversion, finding bugs in software, figuring out when things break. It's just astounding. And I think you're slowly starting to see that trickle more to the built world. But yes. being able to actually collect first party data and then make informed decisions to help you know, wrap, dramatically reduce costs and just improve efficiency feels like an obvious play. I wonder too, I'm not sure what your pricing model is, but it almost feels like one of those things where you could give the sensors away for free to the building owners. Yep. And then just sell the data to all the entities. Because you said before, you have some people who vertically own the entire stack, including the repair and maintenance. You have some third-party companies that are vying for it. The buildings probably want to see some of the data. So it feels like the data piece is the, the valuable part, not the sensor. 
Agreed. And, you know, without uh, getting into too much of some of the the stuff we're doing that um, we're still kind of playing around with, um, I think everything you just said is not, I think, everything you said I would agree with and is accurate. And we absolutely um, have in the past and continue today to, to sort of, you know, experiment with with pricing models and, and where in the in the value chain, you know, people want to, to live or want us to live. Um, and, you know, it's probably not hard for anybody listening to imagine and certainly you to see that a big part of the value in us, you know, or, or the, the, the reason, one of the reasons we wanted that, that hardware so low cost and why we've abstracted as much as possible into software and away from the hardware in order to get that cost down is so that it doesn't become a, you know, we're really not selling hardware. We don't want to sell hardware. That's not how we think about it. Hardware is a distribution mechanism for our software. And so the further we can reduce that, that, that hurdle or that friction point, if you will, to get the hardware on, that's valuable to us because it means more another data, you know, another node of data that come pipe that's coming in, which is to your point where we see the, the future value across a variety of stakeholders. To date, which, which stakeholders have been the most excited about this? Property owners, yeah. by far. Yeah. That makes a lot They're, of sense. And, and I think it's, frankly, because that's where the pain lives the most today. Uh, you know, again, and you can look at Otis's 10Q and they're reasonably uh, happy with the way that their business is going. Um, and I think the other side of that is property owners saying, Hey, how could we do this better? Uh, you know, how could this look different for us? Um, and so they have been by far the most eager to experiment uh, and, and look at the digital tools to sort of change the, the status quo. Well, the cost falls on them, right? For all the, the services. So exactly. Totally, totally makes sense. Yep. <laughs> well, this has been super, super interesting. I've learned a ton. Um, the last question I usually like to ask guests is, has there been a piece of wisdom or advice you've been given in your life or career that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? Oh, boy. Um, so many, I would say, depending on sort of the, 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 the area and the, uh, the decision uh, I'm, I'm faced with at a, you know, at a time, at a point in time, um, you know, if, if you can indulge me on just a couple, I'll rattle them off quickly, but you know, the Fred Wilson, um, you know, he posted one time long ago on a blog, he he said something to the effect of, you know, if you look at the CEO of a company and say, I could do that job, uh, then you should try, you know, or, or yes, you can, and you should do it. Something to that effect. It was encouraging you to 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 a person, the reader, to go out and start a, a company. And I hadn't done that at the point, but but that that resonated with me. I, I thought, you know, hey, like this this person writing across the screen who doesn't know me is sort of encouraging me uh, to go do it in a certain way, and and that resonated with me. Um, and so so that I mean, you know, Andreessen's software is eating the world. That that had a big impact on me. It's my like the movie The Graduate, the plastics, you know, moment uh, for me. Um, and you know, I would say probably like my transition to tech. So I wasn't, you know, I was never a PM at Google. I was never a, you know, I was never on the traditional sort of tech path. I didn't go to like, you know, I wasn't an engineer in college. I wasn't writing code at a young age. I didn't teach myself to code. I never went to a coding boot camp. You know, I didn't do. I, I was never a PM anywhere. I didn't even know what that meant. You know, for for a long time, um, and I was a horrible, you know, 
a PM, I probably still am, my team might say, and I get a lot of help to, to fill in my gaps. Um, but I didn't know any of that stuff. And, and so maybe a little bit less like one line piece of advice, but, you know, between Andreessen Software's Eating the World kind of manifesto, um, which, which just made me feel like I would be limited in the ceiling of my career if I didn't understand software better. I just wanted to learn more about it because my whole life was more industrial, mature industry business. And I thought, hey, like I have a growth mindset. Why not do both? Why I don't have to choose. What if I still know the industrial side? Is there good? There's a lot of very good businesses there. I actually really enjoy working with things in the atoms world, you know, rather than just bits and bytes. Um, but I also want to learn the software, and then maybe I could marry the two someday, you know. And that's kind of where we are today, where I am today, and I love it. And and the last one I would say is just uh, Brad Feld going back like into the early or mid two that early maybe two thousands like. I just started rattling off emails to him, you know, and I don't know if anybody, you know, there's people follow his blog. He was a prolific blogger. He's kind of taken a break more recently, you know, in stretches, but um, he would just always email me back, always email me back uh, and, you know, encourage me to, to like get into tech, you know, not like pushing, not even saying like, oh, you should go do a startup or anything. Just kind of, I gave him some of my story and, you know, he's like just very encouraging the whole time. And, and to me, to someone who was not in tech at all, to get responses from who I, you know, from afar respected a lot as a VC, heavy in tech, you know, I think very respected within that that sphere. That was really cool for me and, and meaningful in terms of like kind of pushing me, you know, it was, it was like very welcoming arms is probably the way to put it. And so it, it, it took my guard down to say, like, be more vulnerable and say, hey, I, like, I'd love to, I'm going to jump into this and I don't know anything uh, about it. And and there's countless other people along the way that have done similar or same. Um, but those were kind of early on uh, that, that really helped me um, and, and, you know, kind of get to a point where I'm at today, which is just to say, I really enjoy what I'm doing today. You know, we're, we've got a long, long way to go and we're heads down working on that. Um, we have definitely not arrived by any stretch of the imagination. We're just getting started. But uh, I'm just happy to have started because of some of the people like that have given encouragement. That's so awesome to hear. The one thing I always tell people is that there's a really strong pay it forward culture in Silicon Valley. And I think that's now permeated to a lot of other tech hubs. But I think most people realize they didn't get where they are today without help from a lot of people. And they're really willing to give time, advice and pay it forward. And I think that's just such an important thing for the entire you know, ecosystem to continue to grow and have more people start companies and be successful. It's great I, to hear. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I would also agree it's permeating other areas. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I, I might argue, I might try to argue that Silicon Valley's, you know, most valuable export for society would be that that culture uh, rather than yes. maybe a, a venture, you know, funding capital stack model. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Well, Rob, if people want to learn more about you and Lyft AI, where should they go? Uh, go check out liftai.com, www.liftai.com. Uh, although I will be the first to acknowledge that is a very old set of information uh, on there. Uh, we know that uh, it's somewhat purposeful. Uh, we've been working on some stuff over the last year that we're just not ready to, to talk about really at, at, in depth yet. Um, so I would really say if you want to learn more, shoot me an email. You know, I, I love talking with people. And to that uh, point, uh, I'll put my money where my mouth is and, and on the uh, pay it forward. 
you know, if people just want to learn more or want any thoughts and they're trying to, you know, discover something they think I could be helpful, uh, rob at liftai.com, shoot me an email. And uh, I love talking to people uh, and trying to pay back the folks that uh, paid it forward to me. Well, that is exceptionally kind of you. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. I personally learned a ton and this was really fun. Thanks, Elaine. I had a blast. It was really nice.